CCBC, um, from the beginning I would like to share with you in light of just what Blake mentioned uh, with all the disaster and difficulties going on in our midst. I love you very much and I'm thankful I get to do this. I pray that this sermon is, is helpful to you and encouraging to you. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I would urge you, pay attention to the examples here given in this scripture. John Piper says in his book, Providence, one of the greatest difficulties of the Christian life is to embrace with vigilance and joyful confidence both the seriousness of God's commands and the certainty of God's commitment to bring us home. Despair and presumption are two great enemies to keep us from living in the miracle of this paradox. Despair focuses only on the commandments and feels hopeless that we could ever persevere in the kind of holiness commanded. Presumption focuses only on God's provision and rationalizes indifference to the commands. Both despair and presumption are perilous. God has shown us how his providence will keep us to the end. And it does not include our neglect of his commands. The path to glory is the path he has shown. There is no other. Friends, this passage is that we're in today in chapter 5 is coming off a section which emphasizes the idea of God's overall providence in our lives and how we are to account for God's sovereignty in all of our dealings. This passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is continuing this idea of God's providence in life and how the last passage was about God's sovereignty in governing and providing for all our needs. This passage is about God's Governing providence and suffering. And specifically what it means to be patient in the midst of suffering. And in the midst of oppression. One thing you'll notice about chapter 5 is that James is recalling many ideas he's already dealt with. Throughout the duration of the book. If you go back to chapter 1 verse 2. He begins the book with this encouragement to count it all joy in the midst of all of our trials. And what James does there is he points to the outcome of our endurance, which is to be perfect, to be complete, and to be lacking in nothing. And in chapter 5, we see this rebuke to the rich, this warning. And he has already dealt with the rich in passages like chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And the idea is brought up again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And there... James specifically rebukes the church for showing partiality for those who would be in fine clothing or those who would be rich and not regarding those who, regarding those who are poor. Even the idea of, of garments, the idea of clothing comes back up in this passage. And then we see this repeated idea of God's heart of compassion and mercy for the downcast in chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. 
And even chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, referenced, referenced a moment ago. But then we see James do something new in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, where he extends this category from those who are on the fringes of society or downcast through the eyes of the world to those who are downcast in spirit. Those who are humble in spirit. And James says there in chapter 4, verse 10, that it is they, it is those who humble themselves before the Lord that he will exalt. And James ends up, ends the previous chapter in verse 17 with the idea of presuming on God's grace. How when God gives grace, we want more and we will push the boundaries of his grace by presuming, presuming upon it. And it's clear from Romans 2 that we are either presuming upon his grace and his kindness or we are repenting because of it. Like I said in the previous sermon in, in chapter 4, presumption, presumptuous sins sever God's love, his mercy and grace away from his other attributes like knowledge, justice, power, and holiness. We make a God in our own image. We want the love of God, the grace and mercy of God without the justice, the power, or the holiness of God. Friends, this same theme continues up into the passage that we're in today. And even if you look at the way the previous passage starts off, you were to go back to chapter 4, verse 13, it says, starts with this, this statement, come now. And this idea of drawing attention. Because what he is about to say has deep eternal ramifications and implications upon our life. So what we are about to look into, friends, we need to handle it with some spiritual sobriety. Because it's heavy. Today we'll be reading from James chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, it's on page 587 through 588. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury. And in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not 
be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Friends, my hope for us this morning, my desire for us as we, as we sit under chapter 5, is that we, with our eyes set on the truth that God will judge the wicked and he will vindicate the righteous that we are urged to bear patiently with the suffering of this life by letting our future hope drive our present faith. So we begin to navigate this passage. I have two points. And under each of these points, I'll have several sub-points. Point number one, God will judge all those who oppress unjustly. God will judge all those who oppress unjustly. That's verses 1 through 6 and a little bit of verse 12. Point number two, God will vindicate all those who patiently endure suffering to the end. God will vindicate all those who patiently endure suffering to the end. And that is verses 7 through 11 and a little bit of 12 as well. So our first point, God will judge all those who oppress unjustly. Verse 1 through 6 reads again, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. Friends, if you were to look real quickly back at chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 says this, But he... God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then verse 9 says this, Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, the verse, verse 9 through 10, read very similar to the way that chapter 5 starts off. Chapter 5 starts off, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. But friends, I want to draw a distinction here. Chapter 4, 10 ends with the statement, God will exalt you. He will exalt you if you humble yourself. 
which is the offer of repentance, the offer of grace. Beloved, there is no offer of repentance in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. There is none. Only the assurance of judgment. So James uses verse 1 as what I would like to call this backdrop statement for this section. And friends, James really acts here like a prophet. He's really taking the character approach of, of being like a Jeremiah or an Isaiah, of calling upon them and telling them, you will be judged for your sin. So the first verse, the backdrop statement, is the judgment of the wicked. So James has been addressing them as, as brothers. But in these verses, he warns the rich that judgment is coming. For they have oppressed their laborers. And so we want to understand that there is a distinction being made here between the rich and brothers. You can see the difference in verse 1 and verse 7. He's not speaking directly to God's people in these first verses. But he's speaking to the rich for the benefit of God's people. James writes this with the intent of telling the church, and I believe with the intent of telling us, friends, watch how God judges these rich people as a warning. Let us be warned. We need to ask if James is speaking to all rich people or if he's just speaking to a specific group of people. Well, friends, later on in the passage, James uses the, the positive example of Job. And Job was a wealthy man. So when James talks about the rich, he means, as so often in Scripture, the unrighteous rich. He's speaking specific, specifically to the unrighteousness of these rich people. Friends, but having said this, we need, to, we need to caution. You know, we're from the Western culture. We're from a culture where we would actually be considered, most of us would be considered wealthy in light of, of the world, in comparative terms to the rest of the world. And we don't need to dismiss this as, as entirely irrelevant, that we are not in this category. So we can't overlook the fact that the rich and the unrighteous are often so easily associated with each other. Scripture warns that wealth can be a particular, a strong obstacle in the Christian discipleship. Jesus says in, in Matthew 19, 23, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We don't simply need to be concerned with the unrighteousness of the rich, but the riches that can lead to unrighteousness. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And friends, the first warning that this passage really lays out for us, and the first example for us is this. Do not fall in love with money. Do not fall in love with money. The covetous desire that these rich people had for money is the most fundamental sin present in this entire passage. Everything else the wicked rich do in this passage is coming from this root desire that they love money. They want it. They covet it. 
Beloved, the scriptures can't emphasize it enough. If you're a person that desires riches, and you think, if I just had more money, I could get rid of most of my problems, and I don't want to dismiss, that could be true. (laughs) But there might be a reason why God hasn't allowed you to have the money you seek. God knows that riches and everything else that comes with it corrupts. People who don't don't have it want it. And those who have it want more of it. As a young child who can't do anything unless the parent picks them up and helps them, they're entirely dependent on the parent. God might be keeping money from you to keep you dependent on him. To keep you close to his side. Friends, usually when we, we gain security, we also simultaneously lose dependency. Remember Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Friends, we don't need riches nor poverty. We need to be content with what is enough. James lays this out at the beginning to emphasize this one thing. These people have riches and they love the riches, along with everything else that comes with it. And for that love of riches and corruption that they practice, James says that they will weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. The the, the word for howl there literally means to wail. Friends, this is a typical description of how evil people react on the day of the Lord. You can look more at that in Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 15, and Amos 8. This exhortation to weep and howl is a graphic, prophetic way of saying to these rich people, you will have reason to. This background makes clear that the misery that is coming upon the rich, it doesn't refer to earthly, temporary suffering but to condemnation and punishment that God will deal out to them on the day of judgment when the Lord returns. That's why James ends verse 1 with the idea, it's coming. It's coming. Beloved, are you ready for that day? As a Christian, we might say, yes, I Yes, Jansen, I'm ready. If you're not a Christian friend, are you ready? As we've been saying this morning, come, Lord, come, does that statement bring terror to your heart rather than joy? We need to study this passage with the question in mind. Are you ready? With this backdrop in place, it would should lead us to ask another question. And this is where the passage 
begins to gain traction. What have they done to experience such terrible judgment? And here I'd like to lay out four ways that these wicked people acquired their money and used their money. The first of these is that they hoard their money. The hoarding of the rich. And that's in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Friends, one of the major ways you could tell if someone had money in James's day is if they had more than one set of garments. It's actually common that most people had only one set of garments. And so if a person was rich, they had maybe two, maybe three. And so this is one of the reasons James brings this up. James is mentioning one of the major ways you could tell if someone was rich. But I'd like to point to the three words that James uses to describe these riches. He uses the word rot, moth-eaten, and corroded. And every one very revealing thing is about these words is that none of them happen if they're being used. None of them would happen. In order for any of them to be true, these items, or the things that he just mentioned, riches, gold, silver, clothing, in order for any of them to, to rot or get moth-eaten, they have to sit for a long period of time. We all know what rot is. You might go home this afternoon and you open your fridge to get some lunch and you open it and smell a horrific smell. comes out and you go, oh my goodness. Well, that's how we know something's rotten. Something is rotting. It's been sitting there. For too long, it's time to clean out the fridge. Well, it's because something is, yes, it's rotting in there. And clothes are only ever moth-eaten when they've been stored up for a long period of time. And the word for corrosion is a word that means to rust. Like leaving a tool out in the front yard uh, and you forget about it. And after you see it again, it has rust. Because it's been sitting out in the elements. It's been exposed to the rain and the sunshine. So James adds this statement at the end of verse 3. And this summarizes this idea. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The word there for laid up literally means to hoard. It says you've hoarded it. James then adds that this, this, this idea of courtroom language of evidence by saying that the corrosion of these riches that they are hoarding will be used as evidence against them. And the idea is that it will be used as evidence against them in the judgment. And he even adds, he adds, it will eat your flesh like fire. And friends, this is a statement of judgment. The judgment is not against that they had riches, friends. The judgment is against how they used it. These rich people have not followed Jesus' exhortation. In Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. The very fact that they've been accumulating 
so much suggests that these rich people have been guilty of focusing on earthly treasure at the expense of heavenly treasure. Showing plainly, friends, where their heart is. Their heart is in their money. These wicked people who are rich were hoarding up their wealth so much that it's apparent that they believed their wealth to actually be their security. Friends, let me ask you this. Could the Lord look in your storehouses right now, the storehouses of your heart, or even your bank account? Is there more hoarding than using? Now, friends, I don't want to dismiss the idea of of laying up some wealth so that you can retire. There's nothing against that. In fact, there's There's many commentators who would be against and who would be for, but the idea, friends, is that you're laying up wealth to be used. But friends, let me ask you as well, has there been hoarding up in the storehouses of your heart? Think about ways that the Lord has gifted you or the way that the Lord has given you knowledge to help or aid your brothers and sisters in need. Have you been hoarding that knowledge and not giving it, not using it? Maybe some of us could be guilty of hoarding encouragement as well. The second thing that the rich withheld or that they did is that they withheld the riches or the the wages from from their workers in verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. Friends, promptly paying workers was very important in a society which people lived literally hand to mouth. They used their daily wages. They literally made money and then used the money that they made that day in order to buy the food that they needed for that day. Scripture tells us in passages like Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, Malachi 3 verse 5, he says, Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Friends, they were going to be judged before God for not paying their workers what they had rightly earned. Scripture is very clear that the laborer deserves his wages. The idea is explained in Luke 10, verse 7, and in Matthew 10, verse 10, and speaks specifically about elders in in, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. And friends, this admonition is, pay people what they earn. What we see is that these wicked men not only hoard their wealth, but they get their wealth in the first place by withholding pay from their laborers. Friends, riches means power. And these wicked men were abusing their God-given wealth and authority to oppress poor people. It's important here to think about what is said in verse 12. Verse 12 reads this way. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. See, what we, what we see in verse 12 is this idea of 
honesty, honest speech, mean what you say. And what we see as an example of the way these rich were treating the poor is the double-mindedness of chapter 1 combined with the dead faith of James 2 along with the untamable tongue of James 3, the sin of presumption in James 4, and in chapter 5, 12, we see this all culminate in hypocritical, disingenuous, untamed, presumptuous speech. And it is oppressive to God's people. Beloved, if you're currently in a place of authority, whether you're a boss, a parent, even a husband, a government official, a teacher at a school, a coach, or even an elder of God's church, God grants authority. And it should represent him. Always. We live in a time where authority is is suspect and needs to be understood in light of God's goodness. Like Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert say in their book, The Gospel at Work, they say, we assume that those who are in authority will use it to dominate us, oppress us, and even abuse us. And sadly, in a world of sin, that is far too often the case. But they continue and say, When you use authority well, you show your employees and everyone around you that authority is ultimately a good thing. That it comes from a God who himself exercises authority with perfect love and perfect justice. How you wield authority, therefore, really says more about the God you serve than it does about you. Friends, whatever kind of authority you have, use it for the flourishing of those under your care and not to oppress them. Do not use your God-given authority to oppress the people that God has put there under your care. Because you will be held accountable for how you steward what God has given you in this life. Once the rich have acquired their wealth and laid it up, what do they do with it? We see that the rich lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5 reads this way, back in James chapter 5. It says, You have lived on earth in luxury, And in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts. Friends, living in luxury leads to immorality. When a person becomes consumed with the pursuit of pleasure, since a life without self-denial soon becomes out of control in every area. After robbing their workers to accumulate their wealth, the rich indulged themselves in an an extravagant lifestyle. They became lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. The passage even says that they fattened their hearts. 
This is the idea of living in such luxury and self-indulgence that they have become fat and lazy with regard to listening to God. Their lifestyle has been so luxurious that they can no longer feel the call to repent because of their fat and unfeeling hearts. Friends, if you feel the call to repent this morning, that is grace. Repent. Do not delay repentance. Come to Christ. If you feel that in your heart this morning, if you sense that, repent. Do not wait till tomorrow. Friends, in every age and at every time, pleasure has been man's primary pursuit. Why do the wicked not pay their workers? And why do they hoard that they might spend it on their own pleasures? And what is pleasure? Well, the last statement of Judges says that it's doing whatever's right in your own eyes. He says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Friends, our world will always be captivated and driven by pleasure. Pleasure to the senses. The common phrase driven by this pleasure-seeking worldly attitude is, how did it feel? How did it feel? When God says, what does it say? We can remember, too, that self-indulgence was among one of the woes against the scribes in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Scripture says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Thomas Manton said this, Pleasures nourish the heart and fatten it into a senseless stupidity. Nothing bringeth a dullness upon it more than they. He says, Luxury is living in pleasure. God alloweth us to use pleasures, but not to live in them. To take delights, but not that they should take us. To live always at the full is but a wanton luxury. Luxury is always accompanied with carnal security and contempt of God. Friends, be careful that pleasure does not entice you away from Christ. Be careful that pleasure does not entice your heart away from Christ. Ask yourself, has the desire for pleasure in your life dulled your heart to the Spirit's conviction? Ask yourself this also, what does my pleasure cost my eternal soul? Beloved, what enamors our depraved hearts will condemn us before God's throne. By their luxury and self-indulgence, we see a fourth thing. The rich condemned and murdered the righteous person. There in verse 6, the text says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and then adds, he does not resist you. Because they hoarded, they didn't give wages, 
lived in luxury. The final outcome is that they condemned and murdered God's people. While they're over there saying, live it up. The poor are dying. Friends, this is the ultimate form of oppression. They believe themselves to be untouchable. Beloved, Psalm 44 is a psalm where God's people are asking the Lord for help. And it seems as if God is silent. Psalm 44 verse 9 says this, But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. In verse 17, he says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then verse 26 says this. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. For the sake of your steadfast love. Friends, while these rich were slaughtering, murdering these poor people, who was Jesus? But the Lamb of God who went to the cross and there was slaughtered by self-indulgent wicked men of this age and there he purchased a people for himself. When we cry out, Lord, redeem us, God responds, I have in Christ Romans 8 verse 31 says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also be with him? Give him graciously all things. Who shall not bring any charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, and he quotes Psalm 44. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus Christ was the righteous man who was condemned and murdered, who didn't resist his arrest but was willing, the willing lamb, to be slaughtered. And on the cross... He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus did all of this, that when we cry out to him, he will deliver you. 
Abel's blood cried out from the ground, and God heard. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them through the hand of Moses. The people of Israel cried out again to the Lord when they were in the land, while the foreign people oppressed them. And the Lord sent judges to deliver them. But the people of God stood shaking. When they stood shaking on the side of the battlefield because they were afraid of the giant who kept cursing God's name, God sent a boy, David, to deliver God's people by conquering the oppressive foe. Moses was a great deliverer. David was a great deliverer, but there was a greater deliverer yet to come who would not fail when tempted, who did not strike the stone, but could turn stones to bread, the one who commanded the oceans of justice to part and defeated the giant of death that he might justify the ungodly. He is Jesus, and he will come again to judge the wicked of this world. Prince Thomas Manton, or Thomas Watson says it this way, Now things are out of course. Sin is rampant. Saints are wronged. They are often cast in a righteous cause. They can meet with no justice here. Justice is turned into wormwood. But there is a day coming when God will set things right. He will do every man justice. He will crown the righteous and condemn the wicked. If God be a just God, he will take vengeance. God has given men a law to live by, but they break it. There must be a day for execution of of offenders. A law not executed is but a wooden dagger. It's good for nothing. At least, at the last day, God's sword will be drawn out against offenders. Then his justice shall be revealed before the world, and the wicked shall drink a sea of wrath, but not sip one drop of injustice. At that day shall all mouths be stopped, and God's justice be fully vindicated from all the cavils and clamors of unjust men. Friends, ask yourself, am I oppressing God's people? Slander? Gossip, selfish ambition can be one of the ways that that happens, friends. Are you using the church to gratify your own selfish ambitions and your own selfish indulgence? Beloved, let me warn you. The church is Christ's bride. He loves his bride. And he will not let her be oppressed without judgment. Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. You see this idea of Proverbs in Proverbs 10.15 as well. James is saying that God is going to lay bare your riches and tear down the walls of security that you've built up in your life because when judgment comes, friends, when judgment comes, all your riches will do no good. Even when the the walls of Jericho were high and mighty, they came down when God bid them to. There will be no earthly security that will stand in God's judgment. Ezekiel 7.19 speaks about the day of the Lord's wrath. 
and says they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. The silver, their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was a stumbling block of their iniquity. Remember when Judas betrayed our Lord? In Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5, it says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Not only was it despair, friends, but we can ask why. Friends, it's because he knew the judgment to come. He knew that Jesus said to him, it would have been better if that man were not born. James then is saying that those who are avidly accumulating wealth in his day are particularly sinful because they, utter, they utterly disregard the demands made upon people by the display of God's grace in Christ. So they presume upon God's grace. And they are especially foolish because they ignore the great many signs of the rapidly approaching judgment. Although the rich do not or cannot see it, their great wealth has already lost its luster. It stands already under the doom of the things of this world that will fade away and can provide no foundation for their life to come. All their riches will perish and their lives will fall under judgment. Friends, this evening Grant is going to be preaching on chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 of 1 Peter, so I'd encourage you to come back. But in the whole letter, Peter exhorts Christians who are going through suffering and persecution. And he encourages them in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed at that time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, get this, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about judgment. When the fires of judgment come, what is more precious? Verse 22 through 23 says, Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. From a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding 
word of God. Friends, one of the mountains that we have to stare at in James 5 is this. Worldly treasure will perish in the end. But true faith, James 2 kind of faith, living faith, saving faith will never perish though it goes through the fires of oppression, attack, abuse, suffering, affliction, and even judgment. Just hearing of the awful events that we've seen these past few weeks, friends, in our country, they've been gut-wrenching. But friends, the fire of trials will burn up your treasures and it will refine your faith. Beloved, a born-again Christian can look at the world full of disaster, struggle, violence, theft, sexual immorality, rampant ungodliness, and say with the utmost conviction, I have Christ, and he is all I need. Christian, this is our assurance. Though the world be on fire, because of Christ, our faith will endure to the end. Now, friends, Point two is that God will vindicate all those who patiently endure suffering to the end. Verses 7 through 11 read this way. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those, who, those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Friends, the attitude that James calls upon for us to adopt here includes this resignation in the face of suffering, along with the confident expectation of the day when the fortunes of this life will be reversed. And negatively, James is probably also implicitly forbidding his readers from taking vengeance on their oppressors. Romans 12, 19 says, Do not revenge, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave it, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. Friends, what James gives is three examples of what it looks like to be patient in suffering and to be patient in a steadfast manner. In verse 7, James undergirds this command to be patient 
with that glorious reality that Jesus is coming. And the idea of patience and steadfastness in the midst of suffering is all through this passage. In verse 7 alone, the word patient is used two times. And the word wait is used once. Also in verse 8 and verse 10. But in verse 11, we see this shift to the idea of being steadfast or immovable. Which is really talking about the same idea or an extension of the idea of patience. But in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, friends, what we see is the fuel for our patience. He is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. And it will be enough to keep us patient. But we are also given a quick warning, friends. If we allow our suffering to cause us to grumble against one another, then we might fall under judgment as well. And what we see is, is James's pastoral heart coming out. He says, don't, be, don't grumble, friends. Be patient. The Lord is coming. So the first example is the farmer in verse 7. In this example, James points out how the farmer waits for what the scripture calls the precious fruit of the earth. Now friends, in a little background, the, the, the residents of Syria and Palestine, they eagerly anticipated the late rains of March and April, uh, which were necessary to ready their late spring and early summer crops. They needed the rain. The main wheat harvest there ran from mid-April through the end of May. And barley harvest was in March. So the main grain harvest came in June in Greece and July in Italy. And farmers' families were entirely dependent on good harvests. Thus James speaks of the precious fruit of the earth. It's precious. Friends, James is using this word because it costs hard labor. It costs a lot of work to get precious fruit. And because it's a special blessing of God for the sustaining of this life. This term is used to show that like fruit is precious to the farmer. Friends, as deliverance is from this life, in this life, is to you and I. Yet he waits for it. The farmer still waits. And James essentially says, you too have a long patience. A long patience. Friends, this idea of the fact that that it's hard labor, that the fruit of the ground is, is precious to the farmer. Friends, we ought to understand it in this way. Enduring to the end will be hard. The Christian life was never something that you signed up to do that would be easy. But friend, the precious fruit of reward that we will receive when we're in heaven with Christ will be worth it. It will be worth it. Continue. 
Continue, continue being patient and persevere and endure because what we will receive in heaven from the hands of our Lord will be precious. The second example is the prophet in verse 10. James, of course, does not tell us what specific prophets he has in mind, but we naturally think of of Jeremiah, who suffered so much at the hands of both pagan kings and especially his own people in the faithfulness to the message that God had given him to to deliver. Friends, the, the, the tradition in the middle of the Testaments between the old and the new reflect in Reflected in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, tells us that the prophet Isaiah died a martyr by being sawed in two. James wants us to know that the prophets suffered in the cause of their God. They spoke in the name of the Lord, doing God's will, James is suggesting, will often lead to suffering. But the encouragement by James is that we are to be patient in our suffering. Beloved, what we need, what we need is a willingness to bear up under suffering. Maintaining spiritual integrity and waiting patiently for the Lord himself to intervene to transform the situation if he decides to. It may also be that James talks about the prophets because they were people who not only suffered injustice but spoke out against it as well. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that the gospel is a message that we are to deliver, not a way that we're just supposed to live. The gospel when we evangelize has to come from our mouth and then lived Supported by our lives. The gospel's a message. And if we suffer for righteousness' sake, if we get gossip and slander from all, all parts of our lives, whether it's our family or our co-workers, let us be bold and share without hindrance. And friends, pray in the process that the Lord would give us boldness to do that. Beloved, we need to learn to suffer patiently as we wait for the Lord's vindication. Afflicted people may comfort themselves and answer the objections of their sad hearts with this. When you have wounds from from men's oppression, friends, you will find compassion in God. You might say, Jansen, I'm I'm pretty miserable right now. You might even call yourself a miserable sinner. And I don't know if I can bear this suffering. And friends, I would answer you this. There is mercy in him and compassion as well. Throw yourself upon his compassion and his mercy can support you when your knees get weak. The third example is in verse 11. In Job 42, verses 5 through 6, Job says, I have heard of you, 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Friends, Job confesses that he has finally learned his lesson about the majesty and sovereign goodness of God. And James, referencing the purpose God had in Job's suffering, friends, it should be a, a source of comfort for us. James points out the steadfastness of Job and the purpose of the Lord as being the hope of the believer. What is the purpose of the Lord, friends? We learn in Job's life that Job first saw that God was sovereign over after being humbled, that God, that God was sovereign after being humbled and repenting of his sin. God desired to humble him by his sovereignty and restore all his welfare at the end of his life. Beloved, God intends to make you whole and content in him. If you go back to the beginning of the book, James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for, the, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says, and let steadfastness have its full effects that you may be perfect complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, that is God's desire for you and I. He desires to make us perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing as his glorious son is. If not in this life, having contentment, then it will surely be in the next. We suffer as God slowly pulls our hands off the control of our lives and makes us fall upon him in humble dependence. All the while, trusting that God is both compassionate and merciful. Friends, I'd like to pull out two overarching ideas from this passage. The first would be this. Verse 11 James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. James is pulling out an idea he started at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Beloved, James brings a pinnacle to the paragraph as a whole by providing the ultimate encouragement for the attitude of patient fortitude that James is exhorting his readers to adopt in the face of suffering. D.A. Carson, when talking about prolonged suffering, friends, you might be dealing with that kind of suffering, a suffering that looks like it has no end. D.A. Carson says, it can breed patience, teach discipline of prayer, generate compassion for others who suffer, Engender some reflection and self-knowledge that knocks out cockiness and arrogance of condescending impatience. Did you know that our own suffering helps us be patient with each other? 
helps us be patient with our children. Helps us be patient with our spouse. And helps us understand, too, that God is patient with us. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of patience we need in the midst of our suffering. Thomas Manton says again, when you can exhaust overflowing mercy, then you may complain. And there is enough in God to satisfy every particular believer. Second thing I'd like to draw out is in verse 8. James says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Friends, this is how we endure. The word for establish is the word strengthen. James is literally saying, strengthen your hearts, for the Lord is coming soon. Friends, one of the ways that we do this, a practical way that you can do this, is by belonging to a church that preaches the gospel and takes membership seriously. So that when suffering comes into your life, we can place our shoulders under the burden with you and help you bear it. Becoming a member of a church is one of the wisest things that you can do as a Christian and one of the most obedient. Do not be a member of a good church to not be a member of a good church while you are suffering is perilous for you spiritually. For your own spiritual good, join a church that will care for you. Hebrews 6 verse 17 and 18 says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Friends, James chapter 5 verse 12 talks about our tendency to be dishonest in our words and our dealings, but we need to remember that God cannot lie. What he promises, he promises this hope that is set before us, and it will come about. John Calvin summarizes the passage in this way. James has regard to the faithful, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs that they suffered, they might with calm and resigned mind bear them. Brothers and sisters, having our eyes set on the condemnation of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous, we must establish our heart And fix our eyes on the hope of eternal life. Like the needle of a compass that never points anywhere but north. We must fix our hearts on the future hope and deliverance of sin in this life. And let that drive our current faith. Friends, to conclude, I'd like to read a hymn. It's entitled, Glory Land. You may have heard it. If you have friends in Glory Land 
who left because of pain. Thank God up there they'll die no more. They'll suffer, not again. They'll weep, then weep not, friends. I'm going home. Up there we'll die no more. No coffins will be made up there, no graves on that bright shore. The lame will walk in glory land. The blind up there will see. The deaf in glory land will hear. The mute will talk to me. The doctor will not have to call. The undertaker, no. There'll be no pain up there to bear. Just walk the streets of gold. We'll need no sun in glory land. The moon and stars won't shine. For Christ himself is light up there. He reigns in love divine. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you've given us James 5. We thank you that you provide for all our needs. Lord, we thank you that it is in your mysterious providence that you decide to bring suffering into the lives of your saints. Oh Lord God, with our eyes set on the, the judgment that will come upon those who do not believe upon Christ, who do not obey Christ by repenting of their sins and believing upon Him, Lord, all of them will perish. But Lord, for us who are, who are believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins, Lord, please strengthen our weak knees. Establish our faint hearts. Set our eyes on the eternal glory and convince us of the hope that is there. In Jesus' name, amen.